The book of Jeremiah is a series of prophecies that are given over a 40-year period from the life of a young man named Jeremiah. Or at least he started out as a young man. Towards the end of his 40-year ministry, he wasn't so young anymore. But in these early years of his ministry, God really used him to give a strong and a bold call to the kingdom of Judah, whose capital city was Jerusalem, a very strong and bold call for them to repent for them to get right with God because their society was crumbling around them and something had to be done. And so we're going to see here how God speaks so plainly and powerfully to his people here in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. They say, If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. Notice here, God is referring to a very familiar picture through the prophet Jeremiah, one that's repeated many times throughout the pages of the Old Testament. The idea is that Israel, the 12 tribes, are collectively the wife of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And as the wife of Yahweh, when they go after other gods, such as Baal or Asherah or Molech, when they go after these other gods, it's as if they are performing as an unfaithful spouse going after other lovers. Now, if you want to take this analogy of the married relationship, God says here in verse 1, If a man divorces his wife, may he return to her again. Jeremiah seems to have had in mind the command in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first four verses of that chapter. In those verses, it says that when a man divorces his wife and she becomes the wife of another man, he must not, or excuse me, she must not return back to the first husband. This was a law in ancient Israel. I'm not trying to say that it should be a law in the community that we live in. I'm not saying it should be a law in the state of California. But I just want you to understand, this was a law in ancient Israel. If a man divorces his wife and the wife goes off and marries another, it would be sin, it would be an abomination for that wife to come back to the first husband. And you might say, why? Why wouldn't it be a beautiful thing? Why wouldn't it be potentially the beautiful restoration of a prior relationship that had come broken? That's not exactly how God saw it in the Old Testament, though it may sound strange to our ears. You see, in our modern ears, it's not completely uncommon for a wife to return to her first husband after a second or perhaps a third husband. But the sense behind the Old Testament law is something like this, is that the idea that both marriage and divorce would be seen of little consequence if somebody would say this. Well, look, uh, I can divorce her, and then I can remarry her later if I want to. God did not want to reinforce that mentality in Israel. He said you should regard marriage as very serious, and you should regard divorce as very serious, and not just do this very frivolous, well, I'll divorce her, but if I want her again, I can just remarry her. God says, no, you shouldn't have that. God says, you can't treat divorce and marriage casually. I will not allow it. Now, notice how he applies it to the people of Israel in Jeremiah's day. Verse 1, he says, But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me. 
In other words, Israel, it's as if you were like my wife, and then you went out and fooled around with many men in the idols that they worshipped. Again, he's speaking in a metaphor, in a picture here. And now he says, even though it might be wrong on a human level for that spouse to come back to the first husband, God says, no, you can come back to me. Do you get what he's saying here? He's saying, though I said in Deuteronomy, don't do it among the marriages in Israel, I want you to know, Israel, that you can forsake the idols that you worship and you can return to me. I want you to look at that line in verse 1. In the New King James Bible, and I don't know what particular translation you have in front of you, I'm looking at the New King James translation. In the New King James translation, the phrase, yet return to me, it's a bit of a mystery to translators. Some translations, substance of the New King James and the New Living Translation, translate it as an invitation to God, uh, from God to Israel. In other words, the New King James Translation has, um, yet return to me, says the Lord. The New Living Translation has this. It has, but have you prostituted yourself with many lovers? Yet, says the Lord, I am still calling you to come back to me. In some translations, it's an invitation. Curiously, in some other translations, it's not an invitation, but rather it's an accusation. The New American Standard has this, but you are a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me. Or the ESV has this, and would you return to me? Now, do you want to know what's so difficult about this? Is actually the Hebrew grammar will allow either rendering. And that's why some translations have it one way and some translations have it another way. Let me give you my opinion on the thing here. I think that since in the rest of the chapter, God repeatedly does invite Israel to return to him and the thought of the return is presented in a good sense in verse 1, I think it's proper to take it as the New King James and the New Living Translation say, as this is God's invitation to return back to me. Friends, uh, religion might have told you you can't turn back to the Lord. Custom might have told you you can't turn back to the Lord. But God says, I don't care. Just return to me. Just come back to me. And then he goes on now in verse 2 where he says this. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see... Where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you've polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Notice this again, verse 2. God's saying, where have you not lain with men? Again, he's using the metaphor of marital unfaithfulness illustrating spiritual unfaithfulness. And God is saying, you've gone after other gods like like an unfaithful wife would run after many different lovers. Who did you not go after? It's as if you were prostituting yourself. I want you to look at something that the English translation really doesn't give a flavor of. But if you take a look at the Hebrew, it's really kind of shocking. In verse 2, it says this question, Where have you not lain with men? That word that's translated lain in that section, in other places in the Old Testament, it's translated ravished with the sense of being raped. I know this is very strong language, but I'm just trying to tell you what the text itself says. The idea is something like this. You were out looking for a good time with all your pagan gods, and look how they abused you. Friends, isn't this the case over and over again? I'll go off and I'll pursue the idol of 
illicit sexuality and you come back ravished. I'll go out and pursue the idol of the party lifestyle and you come back ravished. I'll go out and pursue the idol of success and making career the pinnacle of my life and you come back ravished. You just go out thinking it's going to be a good time and you come back abused. So much so that he says there in verse 2, by the road you've sat for them. In other words, Israel, you were like a common street prostitute. You're illustrating the spiritual adultery of Israel. The idea is that you sought out these idols and you freely offered yourself to them. You didn't even play hard to get. You, You were as if you were a prostitute soliciting them. And so now the penalty of their sin, verse 3. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. Will you not from this time cry to me, My Father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. You see, as he says there in verse 3, there was a bad effect from Israel's idolatry. And one of the bad effects was that the showers have been withheld and there has been no latter rain. There's no rain. You're in a drought condition because of your spiritual idolatry. Their idolatry polluted the land. And therefore God withheld the rain that they needed for their crops and food. And this had a very special irony because so many of the pagan gods that they worshipped, such as Baal and Asherah, those were the ones who supposedly sent the rain. But God said, no, I'll show you that I'm in charge of the rain and you suffer drought because of this. Anybody pick up a newspaper? You know, it's always a delicate thing, isn't it? You take a look at the state of California right now. And you take a look at the prolonged drought that we're in. The extremely low snowpack that there is in the Sierra Nevadas. You take a look at the way that our uh, culture in California seems to. I'm just talking about appearances. Sometimes the truth is different than the appearances. But I'll just speak about the appearances. It seems that our culture more and more rejects God, more and more mocks Him, and we're in a prolonged drought. And friends, the difficulty with something like this is to just sort of quickly point a finger and to say that every natural occurrence has a judgment behind it or a spiritual thing, and sometimes that's just not the case. So that's one extreme. You're very quick to point a finger. Oh, it's a hurricane, it's a judgment of God. Or a tornado, the judgment of God. A tsunami, it's a judgment of God. Listen, not always. You know, we've got to be careful about that. We don't necessarily want to say that. But isn't it another extreme to say that it's never the judgment of God? And friends, i got to think that by and large in the Christian community today, we're off on that extreme. Where nothing's the judgment of God. Nothing is a wake-up call from God to His people. But hopefully we who read and understand and appreciate the Bible have a different opinion. And realize that at certain times, at certain places, God in His mercy and His love, not in His hatred, He sends a wake-up call to His people And to those who have yet to become his people. And it may very well be that this drought that California is in. Is a God's way of speaking to us. The same way he spoke to ancient Israel. 
Now notice this in verse 5. It says, Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. You see, instead of crying out to the Lord and coming with humble repentance, Israel continued with their evil as they were able. Their attitude was, I'm going to get away with as much as I can. And friends, don't we got to admit that's oftentimes people's attitude in the midst of their sin? The attitude isn't just kind of this self-motivated. But when's the last time you saw somebody really repent before they got found out? No, instead the attitude is pretty much this. I'm going to sin as much as I'm able, and then when the jig is up, oh, I suppose I'll repent. Friends, friends, can we not aspire to something higher, something better as the people of God, and not string out sin as long as we are able to do it? And then in verse 6, The Lord also said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She's gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw for all the causes which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all her treachery, all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Now you will recall that in Israel's history there was a time when the two southern tribes were separated from the ten northern tribes by a civil war. And the ten northern tribes became the northern kingdom of Israel. The two southern tribes became the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah is speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah because the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to the Assyrians more than a hundred years before. And do you see what God says to the southern kingdom of Judah? Verse 7. Her treacherous sister Judah saw it. You see, the southern kingdom of Judah should have learned from Israel's idolatry. They should have learned from her refusal to repent and her fall. Instead, look at verse 8. Her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Now, I know what you and I are thinking. We look at this. You're crazy, Judah. Don't you see what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel? They were totally overwhelmed and conquered by the Assyrians and taken away in a cruel exile. And now you're playing the same games that they did and you think you're going to get away with it. And it's easy for me, at least, to stand back and to cluck my tongue and to say, oh, how silly Judah was and they didn't learn the lesson. Then I've got to ask myself, do I learn the lessons? People around me have their lives destroyed by sin. Destroyed. Just like Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. Do I learn from it? I hope so. But friends, we don't always do that, do we? 
Instead, sometimes our response is just like it says in verse 10. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. It seemed like Judah learned nothing from the sin and the consequences that came upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And whatever repentance they did offer was not from the whole heart, but it was only in pretense. It was pretend repentance. Oh, my friends, this is a very serious subject, is it not? Number one, just the big issue. Will you learn from the judgment or the discipline that comes upon other people? Or are you somebody that sort of demands to go to God and say, I'm not going to learn anything unless I learn it from you directly? Friends, please learn learn from the sin and the correction that other people go through. You don't have to live through that yourself. You can learn from others, just like Judah should have learned from, Ju- from Israel. But then secondly, notice this. Whatever repentance that Judah did offer, it was only in pretense. It was pretend. Pretended repentance. Oh, what a difficult and dangerous thing that is. Friends, you know, the way I see it, I look at it, and I want to be very slow to judge the repentance of another person. If somebody's coming and they're repenting, I I want to be very slow. I'm very hesitant myself. No, you're not really repenting. It's all just for show. And I think that if I, as a pastor, as someone who deals with people, just like you may deal with people, I think that I have a responsibility to be very generous in the way that I judge other people's repentance. But there are people who pretend repent, and God sees it. Does he not? Does not God know when a person is only playing in their repentance? So he speaks to them, continuing verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north, that's the direction Israel was in, to the north and say, return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Do you see those words in verse 11? They're almost shocking. He says, backsliding Israel has shown itself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Friends, backsliding Israel was bad. They were really bad. But God, drawing on that illustration, it's as if he looks upon and goes, listen, backsliding Israel was bad, but you, Judah, there's a sense in which you are even worse because you have their example to learn from and you're not learning it. You're not getting it. At least Israel did not have an example of captivity and conquer the same way Judah had it. There is a sense in which Judah was far more accountable before God than Israel ever was. I mean, after all, Judah had the example of Israel to learn from. Judah was closer to the temple and the center of true worship. 
Judah had a better heritage of more spiritual kings than Israel ever had. And Judah's problem was treachery and the pretense of repentance. Israel was at least more honest in their sin. And so for all those reasons, God says to Judah, no, in many ways you are in a worse position than Israel ever was. And then he cries out, looking to the north, looking to the people of Israel scattered throughout the Assyrian and then the Babylonian empire. And he cries out and he says, look at it there in verse 12, return backsliding Israel. God told Jeremiah to invite Israel, even though they were scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire, he called out to them and he said, return to him. But this was the key to their return. Look at verse 13. Only acknowledge your iniquity. This honesty before God, this is what Judah lacked. And this would be the key to repentance and at least spiritual restoration for Israel. Look at those words again in verse 13. Only acknowledge your iniquity. Remember when David was confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin of murder and adultery? Do you remember when David finally confessed his sin? And what did he say? The prophet Nathan said, you are the man. And David said, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses, no shifting the blame, no looking at somebody else, but just being very straightforward and very honest and freely acknowledging his iniquity. It's a great mystery, and I speak to myself. I hope you don't mind if I preach to myself for a few moments and you overhear this. It's a great mystery as to why we don't freely acknowledge our sin. You know, it's almost as if this, it's not our sin itself that keeps us from the Lord. Jesus Christ can deal very easily with your sin. He paid the penalty for that on the cross. You know, it keeps us from God. It's the hiding of our sin. It's the refusal to be real about our sin. There is a sense in which acknowledging yourself as a sinner, you fall into the grace of God. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, isn't it? But no, to to freely acknowledge, I am a sinner and I need a great Savior. You are in the place of an abounding grace coming upon you. But to hide your sin, to cover it, to refuse to acknowledge it, well, that is the dangerous place. Verse 14. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord. For I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Here God speaks to both sisters, to Israel in the north and Judah in the south, even though Israel was scattered more than a hundred years before. He's still looking at his people, wherever they might be scattered, wherever they might be located, and he cries out to them again, and he says, Return, O backsliding children. Have you noticed the word backsliding a lot here? Matter of fact, there is not a chapter in the Bible that uses the word backsliding or backslider more than Jeremiah chapter 3, at least in the King James or the New King James translation. More modern translations such as the ESV or the New Living Translation, they don't have backslider, and you know what? I think they should. Now, I admit it's kind of a rough word, 
Doesn't kind of sound a little bit like an angry preacher? Can't you almost hear a preacher just kind of shouting at backsliders to come back? But you know, it kind of occurs to me, it's been a long, long time since I've heard a message addressed to backsliders. Is it because there are no more backsliders among God's people? <laughs> have, have we blissfully... Is, oh, that's a... Pro- fix that problem. <laughs> I, I don't know if we're afraid of the word. I don't know if we're afraid of the concept. But there are people that God looks at and says, you've declined in your walk. You turned away. Literally, that's what the ancient Hebrew word has the sense of. Someone who turns away. And I don't know why particularly the King James translators and the New King James after them chose that word backslider. But I kind of dig that word because even though it sounds old, even though it sounds archaic, even though I picture a guy, you know, in a suit with a skinny tie, you know, and a little tremor in his voice when he talks about backsliding, it's a powerful word, isn't it? But do you see what it says there in verse 14? Where he cries out, return, O backsliding children. You're my children. Now God is speaking in a figurative sense there. But how many parents have prayed that prayer for their own children? And, and it's the heart of a parent that God has here. I love you. You're my child. You've turned away. You've backslidden. But return, return to me. Do you see the love? Do you see the affection? That God is not angry with the backslider except to the sense and to the extent that they are, so to speak, committing spiritual suicide. And then he says, verse 14, for I am married to you. You see, I find it fascinating that in verse 8 of this chapter, God said that he gave Israel a certificate of divorce. It says that right there in verse 8. Yet here, he seems to say to both Israel and Judah, I'm married to you. Almost as if, okay, I know I said I gave you a certificate of divorce, but forget that, I'm married to you. Because that's how God sees it. I'm married to you. I know you've been unfaithful to me, but I'm married to you. And those pleas, return, O backsliding children, Uh, For I am married to you. They have a great depth of feeling. Friends, this is not a cold, dispassionate God. This is the Lord who's full of warmth and compassion. He's pursuing his wayward people. And as part of the blessing that he'll give to his returning people, look at part of the blessing he gives. Verse 15. I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. You see, after the blessing of restoration, after the blessing of repatriation, God promised the blessing of good and godly spiritual leadership. And he gave an instructive description of what leaders among God's people should be like. Now, if I was speaking to a room full of pastors, I'd really develop verse 15. I'd really develop it to talk about how a true shepherd is given by God. Do you see that in verse 15? I will give you. How a true shepherd among God's people is, surprise, surprise, a shepherd caring for the flock. A true shepherd among God's people should be according to God's heart in the way that they lead God's people. 
and that a true shepherd among God's people will feed God's people knowledge, look at verse 15, and will feed God's people understanding. That's what I would, I'd preach on that if I was preaching to a room full of pastors. But friends, isn't this, isn't this what God promises to his returning people? I'll bless you with good and godly leadership. Verse 16 And then shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Isn't that beautiful? God here promises this beautiful restoration. And it seems that suddenly at verses 16 and 17, the mind of Jeremiah the prophet has been extended down the road into the new covenant and the ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant. The end of the age, in fact. The end of the age when, verse 17, at that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall be gathered to it. Isn't that strange? Friends, the Bible says it here in Jeremiah. It says it repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. That there will come a day when Israel will be the superpower in the world. What a strange thought. Israel is not a big nation. I mean, it's, you know, you could compare it in size to a small nation. You know, Honduras, Guatemala. And you'd think, what a strange prophecy it would be is, you know, Honduras will be the superpower over all the world and the nations will stream to it. You say, well, it's a lovely thought, but I don't really see it happening. But God says it repeatedly of Israel. This is new covenant talk. This will be fulfilled ultimately within the new covenant, especially where it says in verse 17, no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Verse 18, in those days the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land to the north of the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. Again, part of this broader new covenant pointing towards it. Jeremiah doesn't really expound on it very much here. He deals much more with the new covenant in later passages in his prophecies. But this is new covenant kind of talk. And then verse 19, But I said, again, In the midst of all this restoration, look at the question God brings up. Verse 19, but I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. You see, rhetorically, God asks, how can I put backsliding Israel and backsliding Judah? How can I bring them back into the land? How can I bring them back to restoration? I'll tell you how. It'll be through the work of repentance that happens in them. Look at verse 19, where you shall say, call me my father and not turn away from me. That's turning back to the Lord. That's real repentance. Israel and Judah would come back to the Lord and say, my father. And they would not turn away from the Lord any longer. And then now in verse 21, in very tender language, he begins to describe the repentance of Israel. A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, we do come to you 
for you are the Lord our God. Here Jeremiah prophetically sees Israel weeping over their sin and coming back to the Lord. This no doubt will be ultimately fulfilled at the end of the age, even as Jesus said prophetically in the book of Zechariah, and they shall look upon him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as they mourn for an only son. Friends, this will happen weeping and repentance. And God cries out to them and says again in verse 22, return you backsliding children. And then look at their response later in verse 22. Indeed, we do come to you. Jeremiah spoke of the day when the children of Israel would respond to God's call and return and be healed from their backsliding. If you go to Israel today, now, Israel as a concept in the scriptures is much larger than the political entity known as Israel today. Israel as a concept in the scriptures, it's the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the people of Israel, which only a small percentage live actually in the political entity known as Israel. But if you go to Israel today, you will see it is a secular nation. Now, it is surrounded with beautiful spiritual things, and we love to go to Israel, and we love to experience the whole experience there in Israel to to really walk where Jesus walked and be there in the Bible places. It's a wonderful thing, but make no mistake about it. By and large, it's a secular nation, and they need to turn to the Lord. And here Jeremiah prophetically promises, as do many other passages in Scripture, that it will happen. I like what he says, though. Did you see that phrase in verse 22? Return, you backsliding children. Can I read you a little bit of Spurgeon from there? Of course I can. I'm, I got the microphone. <laughs> Spurgeon says this. He says, return, you backsliding children. I notice that he does not say, return, you penitent children. He pictures you in your worst colors, and yet he says, return, you backsliding children. I notice also that he does not say, heal your wounds first and then come back to me. But he says, return, you backsliding children, with all of your backslidings unhealed, and I will heal your backslidings. God says to you, backslider, come to him just as you are right now. You don't have to fix yourself up. You come to him. If God speaks to your heart tonight and says, I am a backslider, you can come to him right now in your backslidden condition. Isn't that a beautiful invitation from the Lord? Then he goes on, verse 23. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel, for shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in shame and our reproach covers us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Here he finishes this chapter with a beautiful example of honest confession of sin and repentance. Isn't it a very eloquent expression of that? Notice, first of all, verse 23, truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills. You see, in their idolatry, Israel often built altars on 
high places, the tops of hills. These were the popular places of pagan worship. And this is what they say. They say, we're not going to look to those high places anymore. We're not going to look to those hills. No, instead, we're going to look to the Lord. We're going to look to him. This is God, I'm no longer going to trust in all those things that I trusted in, in my backslidden condition. I'm not going to trust in my own wisdom, my own cleverness. I'm not going to trust in pleasure. I'm not going to trust in intoxication. I'm not going to trust in money either long. Those things all have their place. But Lord, no, no, God. They've been idols in my life and I put them aside in my backslidden condition and I come unto you. And then you recognize the cost that it's been to you. Look at it in verse 24. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth. You see, upon those altars to pagan gods, upon those hills, generations of Israelites sacrificed their flocks and their herds, and even, look at it there in verse 24, even their sons and their daughters. Sometimes figuratively and sometimes literally, it was all a shame that devoured. You realize what your idolatry has cost you. How long, Lord? How long am I going to bear this cost of it? No, I must turn to you. And they say in verse 25, we lay down in our shame and our reproach covers us. And then they say these beautiful words, verse 25, we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Friends, this is an appropriate expression of repentance. Don't you love it? No excuse, no rationale. No repentance with a lot of yeah buts. No attempt to minimize. Sin isn't called a mistake, a slip, a whoopsie. No, I've sinned to God and I ask that you come and receive me as a sinner. I come to you, Jesus, as a great sinner who is a savior who is even greater than my sin. That is him. There is something to me so refreshing about the book of Jeremiah. You say, are you kidding me, David? This is tough stuff. How is any of this so refreshing? I'll tell you what's refreshing to the book of Jeremiah about, or about the book of Jeremiah to me. It's refreshing that it speaks so honestly and straightforwardly. Don't you think that there's a lot of just words and and a light covering over sin and corruption in our culture. It's as if Jeremiah blows the lid off of it. He has, to use sort of a disgusting metaphor, he's picked off the scab so that it can be seen in all its ugliness, but so that the wound can be cleared. Where instead our culture today, it's just throwing band-aid after band-aid over that wound. There's something beautiful and powerful and refreshing because it's so different to hear from the Lord through the prophet Isaiah speak to a backsliding people. Father, this is our prayer. We pray that in the name of Jesus, you would help us. Lord, I pray right now, anybody in this room tonight for whom the word backslider would properly uh, apply, I pray that now you would cause them to turn to you. 
Lord, maybe they've already done it. They've already done it, even as they've heard tonight. They've said in their hearts, this is me, this is me, I must turn. Lord, for those who have not yet turned, I pray that you would speak to them now and that you'd lead them to that. And that, Jesus, we would accept your unbelievably generous invitation to return to you. Lord, even if it was a shameful thing under the law of Israel for a a woman to return to her husband whom she had once divorced, Lord, it's not a shameful thing with you. You say, yet return to me. And we do, Lord. We do. We pray that you'd make us like salt and like light in our present culture. And we praise you for it all tonight here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, Keith. Hey, Dave. Welcome back. Thank you. You didn't come back from vacation just for this, did you? No. <laughs> just to ask you questions. That's, right. what, that's the only reason I'm back. All right. And I'll be gone again tomorrow. So, right. Well, thanks for that message. Uh, we all appreciate it, as always. Uh, a lot of the questions centered around kind of the same things, so I'm going to kind of just go with that theme, and I think all of the questions tonight. And they all have to do with uh, God's judgment and then that relationship to our culture and to, to the church. So, right out the gate, uh, how do we know when it is a judgment of God then? Well, let, let me say, I don't know that anybody can know with absolute certainty. Can we? P- probably not. But how about this? Is there anything wrong with regarding it as a warning for yourself and for your family that you need to repent and get right with God? I would probably forbear, as a, as a pastor, and being a pastor, I mean, at least to a small extent, makes me a public person. I would, um, I, I would probably shy away from uh, some open declaration to the state of California, this drought is the judgment of God. I, I mean, because how can I be sure? But I don't have any problem telling the flock that God has entrusted to me, we need to take this as a serious wake-up call from the Lord and seek His face. So I, I think we, we just need to recognize that we can't operate on this with some kind of absolute certainty. I, I think that's the tension because if we can't have certainty, then why would we ever try to connect those dots at all? Because it seems that there's more people that are really quick to connect these uh, catastrophes to God's judgment. Okay, let, let, let me disagree with you on that. I don't think that it's many people who are quick to do that. The loudest. I, I think that the media loves to make them the loudest because they think it's so absurd and ridiculous. And the whole point of the media publicizing anybody who says, wasn't it, uh, okay, I, I don't need, I get my disasters mixed up. But, you know, wasn't it like Pat Robertson who said that Hurricane Katrina was the judgment of God or something like that? Something along those lines. The media loves to trumpet that far and wide because to them, it's the most absolute ridiculous thing in the world that God would judge anybody. You see, they're way over on the other extreme. And uh, I think that the dominant attitude in our society is that God would never judge anybody for anything. 
And then you start talking about some extreme example. Okay, uh, Charles Manson, Mao, uh, Stalin, and Hitler. Okay, they get judged. But everybody else, you know, you're good. That's kind of the way the culture thinks. Uh, But there is a lot of publicity given to the few voices that do connect that. And also the question that then has come up is, because if we do connect any kind of judgment to America, we're not a theocratic nation as Israel was that has entered into a covenant with these stipulations that he would do it. That is absolutely true, but you can't say that God isn't interested in the conduct of a nation just because it doesn't have the same covenant and agreement that he did with Israel. God still cared about the Edomites. He still cared about the, uh, the Babylonians. He still cared about the Egyptians. There were judgments spoken against them. And so it's absolutely true. We can't put ourselves in the exact same place as Israel. We are not God's covenant nation after the same pattern as Israel was in the Old Testament. But you can't get away from the the principle that God continues to deal with nations even if they're not under that covenant agreement. And then the relationship to to the church, because uh, if we want to trumpet that God has not appointed us to to wrath, etc., then why is the church also experiencing these these judgments if it's really the culture? Well, this this is one of the difficult things about when God judges a nation. And I, I, I don't know if this is controversial or not, but surely anybody who reads the Bible and who looks at history must say that at some times, in some places, God has judged nations. When God judges nations innocents suffer under that judgment. There's just no doubt about it. It's very sad. When the northern kingdom of Israel was engulfed by the Assyrians and cruelly taken away in capture, there were children who did not participate in the sin of their people against the Lord, and yet they suffered under it. They were killed, they were carried away into captivity, they were impoverished. And this, this is a tragic fact about when God judges a nation. There are people who are not directly responsible themselves for the sin of that nation who nevertheless suffer under it. Yeah. I, so it seems to me. No, that, it, it's, it's, it's a mystery. And it's, that's yeah. a good answer. I yeah. like that. Okay. So then you, would you say God is already judging our country? Quick answer for this one, because I've had two follow-ups. I have two important ones I want to do. Uh, I believe that there is an aspect of God's judgment against our country at work. Okay, that was quick. That wasn't fair to me. Um, no, it's okay. No, okay. but I, I, I don't mind answering that question. I, I need to be careful because, look, when you, when you take a look at what God does when he really judges a nation, we're a long way from that. We're a long way from that. Let, let, let's get honest, folks. Let's, let's not get carried away with this. But are there aspects of the judgment of God? I, I, I would almost say this. We're like a ship that is hostile against God's navy. This is kind of a silly illustration, but... We're like a ship that's hostile under God's thing. And God is firing warning shots across the bow. 
That's, that's a good illustration. You, know, you like that? I did. It, and, and the potential is if we continue, and I, look, it could be 10 years, it could be 100 years. But if we continue to reject and mock God, the ship will go down. Yeah. Okay, uh, two questions tying all of this into the question about eternal security. Uh, with the certificate of divorce, using the language of the text, you know, I'm divorcing you, but I'm taking you back. It, it almost sounds like what some people would call the salvation bus. You're on it, and then you're off it, and then, okay, I'm going to get back on it. Would this sort of allude to that, that they were somehow slipping in and out of this? I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think when you take a look in the fullness of the context... The certificate of divorce was a warning. But God confesses, I am married to you. By the way, there are some people who teach that God has divorced Israel and is forever done with them as Israel. I would just remind them of what the book Jeremiah says in chapter 3. For I am married to you, says the Lord. Okay, last question that's really in the same vein as that. Let me find it here. If somebody, I haven't memorized, even though I can't find it, so that helps. If somebody dies and they haven't, they're backslidden and they haven't repented, mm. but they did have that confession of faith, they had a walk that was fruitful at least for a season, and then they die in their sin, where are they? Judge you know, hell or heaven? The Bible, the Bible speaks of those who are saved by the skin of their teeth. It describes they escape by the skin of their teeth. And, um, you know, let me just say this. If anybody, I, I know that there's a theoretical way, just a, you know, kind of discussion idea way. But if somebody's seriously asking that question for their own life, how much can I really get away with and still be saved? That should be like a great big warning sign flashing in their life. I, I, to answer the question, I can't tell. But, but... Just if somebody's seriously asking that question, not as just kind of an interesting speculative thing, but if they're asking it relevant to their own life, they're in a dangerous place and they just need to come back to the Lord.